Hello again. I'm Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Today we're going to talk about spouses. Wow, Robert, that, that, really, <laughs> that really opens the door into an interesting conversation about Doug and Rhonda. Yeah, we each have one of those. <laughs> we're sort of hoping they aren't listening today because we're going to talk about dissing your spouses. More, pro- more accurately, we're going to talk about disinheriting your spouses. Last week, our podcast was about disinheriting your children, and we hinted then that we wanted to talk a little bit about what you have to go through to disinherit a spouse. Uh, we need to be very clear that Arizona law differs in a lot of ways from the law of other states, but in many ways it's the same. And so pretty often when we talk to somebody who has moved here from another state or who has family in another state, we can say, uh, you know, the laws are pretty much the same and these rules will probably apply. You should check with somebody locally. This is an area where that is not true. Arizona law is significantly different from the law of, of many other states. Not necessarily most other states, but many other states. And one of the reasons for that is because of the community property principles. Arizona is one of about a dozen community property states in the country. So that means about three quarters of the states are not community property states and have very different rules. With that caveat, Elizabeth, I want to disinherit Rhonda. Rhonda, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But suppose I did want to disinherit Rhonda. Uh, are there special rules that I need to go through in order to do it? Are there limitations on my ability? So yes and yes, Robert. But before we get there, one of the things that I'm going to do with you is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why you would want to disinherit your spouse. Um, we she have... criticized my cooking the other night. Oh, no. <laughs> well, the reason I'm asking the question is, is that there can be very good reasons for estate planning purposes specifically related to estate tax, Um, or really very complicated planning um, for some families who have a high net worth where we'll talk about what it means to disinherit a spouse. There are also occasions where somebody may decide that they want to disinherit a spouse because they're concerned that a spouse may lose his or her eligibility for public benefits. We need to make sure that we discuss that with you because we may be able to help you avoid that and allow your spouse to receive some benefit from your estate. So the first question I'm going to always ask is why? And the next question that I think we need to look at is, well, if we are going to disinherit your spouse and we're in Arizona, you need to keep in mind that there is something called a homestead exemption, which means that even if I very intentionally have specific language in my will that disinherits my husband, my spouse, and I, maybe I have a trust and I have language there, that Arizona law is still going to be something that may affect my ability to disinherit. And, you know, it's important that people understand that this homestead exemption is not the same thing as the one that keeps your creditors from selling your house. In fact, it's technically called an allowance in lieu of the homestead Mm. exemption. And And it's a bundle of three different benefits that a spouse is entitled to, even if they've been disinherited, even if they've been very effectively disinherited, even if there is no contest provision in the will or the trust. Arizona starts from the threshold that there are three small sums of money that a surviving spouse are entitled to, is entitled to, are entitled to, I'm not sure, uh, but regardless of what the document says. Now, those three little piles of money right now add up to $37,500. So that's not 
an earth-shattering amount of money. And Robert, where do you think that amount of money came from? It came from 1974 when Arizona <laughs> adopted the Uniform Probate Code. And actually, they've done one increase in the numbers since then. Sometime in, I think, the 1980s, uh, one of the numbers got doubled, if I remember correctly. So they started at something less than $37,000, but they simply have not kept up with inflation. The idea of that $37,500 uh, minimum that you leave a spouse is that's enough in theory to allow the spouse to survive during the period of administration of your estate. Uh, of course, that's absurd and, and that isn't right. And actually, the judge has the ability to change the number depending on the, the circumstances uh, of the spouse's living arrangement. Uh, but that, by the way, is $37,500 that can be satisfied by a joint tenancy arrangement. So, for instance, if Rhonda and I have a $100,000 bank account in joint tenancy and I disinherit her from everything else, well, she's gotten more than $37,500 from the joint tenancy bank account. She doesn't get anything more. So, Robert, what if we work on a prenup with somebody? Uh, so a prenup, uh, Rhonda and I got married in 1973, so it's a little, uh, that ship has sailed some time ago. <laughs> but, uh, but for a, a, a sh more recent relationship, a, prenup is, a prenuptial agreement is a great way to address this because, in theory, Rhonda and I could have given up our rights, respective rights, to make claims against the other's estate had we done it before we got married. There's also, under Arizona law, a way to do a similar agreement after you're married, usually called a postnuptial agreement um, a, or a property settlement agreement or some variation. Uh, and uh, it's just a little more complicated to do it after you've gotten married because it's harder to see what the exchange of, of agreement is uh, when, when there's not a marriage on the line. But there are a bunch of rules about making sure that both prenuptial and postnuptial agreements are legitimate. And one of the things is if you and your spouse come to Fleming and Curdy and say, we've talked it through, we really in good faith, we've disclosed everything to each other, we really want to do a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement, can you do it? The answer is no, we can't represent both of you. And if we've already represented both of you in doing your estate plan, that means that there are going to be two new lawyers involved, even if you're in total agreement, even if everything is, is uh, completely hunky-dory at your house. And we're not doing that because we don't want to work with you. We're doing that because ethically we need to. And I think that one question that's come up to me before about spouses and, and what happens is when a spouse may become incapacitated. You know, if you have developed a joint estate plan with your spouse and your spouse becomes incapacitated, you may have the ability to revoke your, your trust, you may have the ability to amend your trust, but you have to keep in mind that as attorneys who've represented both of you, we can't all of a sudden start to work with only one of you to revoke a document that brings benefit to the other client. So this can actually become a pretty complicated set of ethical facts for an attorney. And I think when we work with people, it is important for us to know whether or not you've had a conversation with your spouse about some of this. Because we need to keep in mind that chances are the person who's going to be um, picking up your cremains or planning your memorial service may be your spouse. And the last thing that we want to do is not plan ahead for some of the circumstances related to the administration of your estate. 
So it is important to keep in mind that if you decide to disinherit a spouse and we work with you on developing a plan to do that, it does not mean that your spouse won't be entitled to some kind of reimbursement if there are out-of-pocket expenses related to the administration of your estate. We started out by talking about how Arizona law is different from other states. Even other community property states, by and large, I think, have numbers larger than $37,000 that have to be left to the to the surviving spouse. Uh, so we are pretty cheap with that in Arizona. Why so cheap? Well, it's because we're a community property state, and the laws were written with the expectation that in most cases, the surviving spouse already owns half of the community's assets. Probably they were all collected during the period of the marriage. Probably they're all community property. That's not always true, but that's the basis for that very small amount of money that you have to leave to a spouse. In other states, non-community spouse, non-community property states rather, the surviving spouse may be entitled to a third of the estate or a half of the estate or a trust uh, with all of the income from a portion of the estate or some other kind of arrangement. Uh, That's not the case in Arizona. But that also means when you say, I want to disinherit my spouse, we have to scratch our heads a little bit and talk about uh, about where the money came from, whether it's still separate property from another state, might still be subject to that state's laws, whether you've converted it into community property. Um, it can be a very complex question to disinherit a spouse. And Robert, I think one thing for those of you listening today who have seen our estate planning questionnaire That's a document where we ask you to summarize your assets, the title of those different accounts, um, and provide us just with a broad overview of assets. We can draft beautiful documents that will um, effectuate your intent and work to disinherit a spouse. But gosh, if you have accounts that are held in joint tenancy, if you have your spouse as the primary beneficiary of your IRA, well, gosh, we really need to talk about that because because we need to remember that the way that those documents, uh, your estate plans, will effectuate the title of accounts is really, it can be counterintuitive to people. They can think, well, gosh, if my estate plan says it, it must be so. Right. Beneficiary designations and titling are a huge barrier to accomplishing people's wishes. And, and so often, as you know, Elizabeth, it's it's a circumstance where people tell us, no, no, my wife is the beneficiary, or I've named my three children as beneficiaries on that IRA. And again and again and again, when we see the beneficiary designation form, our clients misremember what they did. So uh, it's more than just filling out the form and telling us we need to actually see the whole picture. And Robert, the other thing is, is for those clients who have named a spouse as a beneficiary of a retirement account, If you go ahead and try and update that beneficiary designation and do not have a signature from your spouse, that's going to probably cause issues for the custodian who is managing the plan. So sometimes you just can't get around it. And hiding a disinheritance from your spouse, of your spouse, it's just not a good idea. It's going to make things more difficult. Uh, Of course, pretty often when there is a disinheritance, it's a mutual disinheritance. It's typically a second marriage both spouses are going to leave everything to the children, their respective children from the first marriage. Maybe it was a late marriage. Maybe each of them is worth about the same amount. Uh, so most often when we see disinheritance of spouses, it is not a, a confrontational uh, matter. But it still occasionally raises the ethical problem that we really can't sit in a room with both of you and talk about how each of you is going to treat the other one. 
There's one last thing I think I want to mention before we leave this, because when we talked about disinheriting children, we described how an inheritance that you leave to one of your children is their separate property. It doesn't become the community property of the spouse. And when we're now talking about disinheriting spouses, we need to be clear that if one of the spouses has an inheritance that they've kept as their separate property, they've never commingled it, never turned it into community property, they have complete control over where it goes. They can, they can leave it to the children, the grandchildren of your mother who left you the money, whatever you want to do. There is still that $37,500 barrier, but, uh, but the rest of what you do is up to you. So that really is your separate money still, so long as you have kept it separate ever since you received it by gift or inheritance. And Robert, for anybody who is listening today and who is deciding that they are going to head towards a separation or divorce with a spouse, it's a good idea to sit down and talk to an estate planner. Um, we, we work with people from time to time who are just about to start that process to um, separate or divorce. And it makes sense in those contexts to have a conversation about assets and estate plans. Um, oftentimes, one of the very first documents we talk to people about updating is a healthcare power of attorney, something like that. But when we work with people who are wanting to update their estate plans in anticipation of a divorce, that's also a pretty complex matter. And we don't just do things overnight so that the next day you can say, <laughs> I'm done. Uh, it's actually quite a more serious conversation. So Harry and Martha came to Fleming and Curdy 10 years ago, and we did their estate plan. They were a married couple. We got them to sign an agreement that they waived any conflict. And now Martha calls us up and says, um, I've really had it with Harry. We're going to separate. We're going to get divorced. I want to update my estate plan and remove him from everything. I want to disinherit him. I want to name somebody else's agent on my powers of attorney. Do we have any problem, Elizabeth? We do, Robert. We have represented the couple jointly. It does not mean that we can't develop a different relationship with each one of them, but it means that we can't then do work for Martha in your circumstance. We need to make sure that there is some conversation with Harry and that there is some discussion about who we represent. We, we can't just turn on a dime. It's something that's important for people to understand. Well, I think that's a that's enough happy talk about <laughs> failed marriages and broken relationships for the beginning of the year. So you've been listening to Elder Law Issues. My name's Robert Fleming. I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and we are two of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona law firm, Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. Uh, you know, we are so devoted to the practice of elder law that you find us on the web at www.elder-law.com. Uh, we were early adopters, and, uh, and we are very proud of the information there, and we're very proud of this podcast series. We hope that you will join us again for the next episode. You know, we're, we're bumping up against, I think, 100 episodes, Elizabeth. Well, we hope that you'll also send us some ideas. We, we have listeners who every once in a while will drop us a line and ask us to talk about a certain topic, and we're open to that. So let us know if you have any ideas. All right. Talk with you next week. Good day. <laughs>